Good evening and welcome to the LSE. My name is Ricky Burdett and I'm a professor of urban studies at the Department of Sociology here in the school. Uh, and it's my enormous pleasure together with nearly all my colleagues here from the Department of Sociology and many others from other departments of school to welcome you to listen to uh, a friend and a colleague, Fran Tonkris. And we are celebrating uh, her uh, professorship at the LSE. This is her inaugural lecture here at the school, even though for some of us it feels that the school hasn't been here without Fran. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't feel like something new, but it is something new and something very important in terms of actually recognizing it. Can you not hear me? Can you, can you hear or not so well? It's okay? Up there. Thanks. Rarely said, Ricky. So um, um, the event is structured in the normal way of evening talks at the LSE, which is I will introduce Fran. Uh, Fran will talk for some time. We'll see how it goes. Uh, we will then have uh, time for questions, but most importantly, and I know that's why some of you are here, we're all going to have drinks together afterwards. Uh, but that doesn't happen in this wonderful building. Um, it's actually happening in the old building, which is across the road on the fourth floor. So when we finished here at around uh, before eight, we'll just all go over to the other side and go to the fourth floor. In terms of just the dynamics of the evening, you'll see the hashtag uh, for the event behind me. It's an inaugural event for Fran. I hadn't realized that I was made the chair of the LSE uh, today, but okay. <laughs> one has to sort of invent things as you go along. Um, and uh, you will notice something uh, which is typical of Fran uh, as she talks, which is really acceleration and speed tonight. Now, Fran likes doing things quickly on the whole. Uh, everything she does. She walks very fast, she talks fast, she thinks fast, but when there's a Champion League semi-final, uh, I think life becomes even more importantly, and later on, and we'll hear about this, no doubt, um, this is a, a, an important fact which shapes her life and uh, shapes other people's lives tonight, because at 7.45 uh, there's a Champions League start. But we won't let that affect the discussion today. It's also quite interesting, we're in this rather bizarre building. If we ever think that uh, space and society are connected in any way, we'll hear a lot about that uh, tonight. There's nothing more depressing than this building uh, <laughs> and nothing more depressing than this <coughs> new theater, as it's called. But it's an extraordinary event because, in a way, in a few weeks' time, this building will be knocked down uh, and will be become part of the new campus, which is being revived here uh, at the LSE. These are themes that are very much central to uh, the work that Fran has been doing for years now and with many colleagues at the Department of Sociology. She's not only a professor uh, in the department, as we've heard, but she's also uh, the director of the Cities Program, and she runs, together with uh, a number of other colleagues here, Philip Rode, myself, uh, the LSE Cities, which is a research center, which looks at the interfaces of the spatial uh, and the social. She's going to be talking tonight about the book that will be published next year by Polity, which that is will called... will be written next year. Will be written <laughs> after tonight. <laughs> written but that's why we have these events. Uh, and it's about divided cities, as you know from the title. It's about urban inequalities in the 21st century. Now, this will be an important book, which we'll talk much more about and have opportunities, I say, to have a discussion, which will add, I think, literally to the arsenal of... Uh, uh, <laughs> of, of of Fran's uh, work, which has really um, connected big theoretical issues about the economy, about social theory, 
uh, and about design to the making and shaping of cities. This is what her life's work has been about here at the LSE and also before that when she was at Goldsmiths. Now, her book, Cities by Design, which um, is a sort of continuation of a dialogue of uh, work that she's done with students here at the LSE over a number of years, um, is in fact not only a bestseller, it's used uh, like a sort of Bible by all the students here, but when it came out, I remember Fran was very touched when the Morning Star, I think, reviewed it with this phrase, a momentous work of uncommon intelligence and clarity that packs a powerful political punch. Tonkus, at heart a situationist, yes? <laughs> Let me remind you what that is. An elite group of social revolutionaries made up of avant-garde artists, intellectuals, and political theorists from the 50s on. Fran is very much all of those rolled into one and a fan of football. I mentioned the students um, in Fran's sort of work and in her um, activities. And I think, in some cases, academics are clearly connected to uh, their teaching side. In Fran's cases, it is a completely symbiotic relationship. I know that I speak for at least 10 generations of students here at the LSE who benefited from uh, her connection to them and her commit to them, uh, commitment to them. Uh, her work, Cities by Design, the, that one book, is effectively something which is written, I'm not saying not for peers and review journals, but very much for the next generation of urbanists, many of whom are trained here but elsewhere in the world. And you can feel that not just in the pages of her writings, but also when you walk with her, as students have done, and some of them are here in the streets of Bucharest, uh, in the streets of Moscow or Beirut, I think, in a few weeks' time, to really sort of pick out from the reality, from the flesh of the city, what the sort of social issues are. And apart from everything else she does, uh, she's also the managing editor of Economy and Society. She's on the editorial board of the British Journal of Sociology, works with the intelligence, uh, Economist Intelligence Unit on uh, Human Cities Project, etc. Now, I know I'm going to milk this analogy a bit too far on football, but if you know Fran, it really, really matters. So if you put um, sociology and football on Google, you get 13.5 million, actually, sort of uh, entries. And they refer to hooliganism, class, gender, ethnicity, everything else. If you keep on going and you add the word Tonkis, then actually a series of football books show up. But I mean, maybe you didn't know that. If you put the word sociology and Arsenal in, which is her favorite football team, in case you haven't got that, uh, there's a reference to Weber and the notion of his important work, the ideal type that will be familiar to many of you in the room, as a sort of conceptual arsenal of sociology. And it's an interesting quote, which is, refers to the fact that effectively through the ideal type he built a theoretical model constructed by means of a detailed empirical study of a phenomena. Now, I would say that Franz work to me, certainly and to all of those who know her and heard her talk, She's constructed a theoretical model of the city in, in many ways, um, looking at it as a physical and a social artifact. Design um, for Fran in her book that I've referred to is intended as a social practice and process that shapes spatial forms, relationships, and outcomes in intentional, and I think this is the most interesting thing for us, in unintended ways. So tonight she's going to take those concepts further, 
As I say, it's a little bit for me uncharted territory, um, but maybe for you too, as you just said. But will, and it's about urban inequality and her new thought of that. Really, the questions she's going to pose and share with us are what is new and interesting, what is urban about inequality? It's so obvious in London and in many cities that we all study together. What is urban about contemporary patterns of inequality? How do urban environments and urban forms actually reproduce, embed, and make visible relations of inequality? And I think very interestingly and very important for a school like the London School of Economics, what can actually governments do uh, about this to sort of change the, what seem to be sort of inevitable patterns of inequality that surround us? So we have quite an evening in store. Will you join me in welcoming the Professor of Sociology, Fran Tonkis? Thank you very much uh, to Ricky for that introduction, as for much else. Not for the first time in my professional life, um, I realize how difficult it is to follow in Ricky's footsteps. I appreciate it. Um, thanks also to all of you for coming along this evening. You might much have preferred to spend the time winding down the last hours of a general election campaign, uh, let alone getting home in time for kickoff. So I really do appreciate your coming along this evening. Uh, in spite of our reservations about this particular building, soon to pass, I'm actually rather pleased to be here in the new theatre tonight. Uh, there's even a kind of personal poetry for me in being in this space. The first time that I ever visited the LSE, which was almost 25 years ago, I came to attend a public lecture in this very theatre, and I sat somewhere up there. Um, I was a recent graduate at the time from my first degree, and I was a recent immigrant to this country, and more particularly, I was an immigrant to this city, which is really the, was the object of my migration. I was here to listen to the Isaac Deutsche Memorial Lecture, which was uh, an event that marked the most significant contribution made to Marxist literature in the preceding year. Um, I, from memory, it was Terry Eagleton giving that uh, lecture. Much has changed since I sat somewhere out there 25 years ago. Um, the new theatre, in truth, has not changed that much <laughs> over that time. And um, I myself still like a bit of Marxism. Uh, but London, of course, has seen a great deal of change. Yet, since 1990 in London, the more things have changed, of course, the more they have stayed the same. And this is to bring me towards my theme tonight on urban inequality, including some of the ways in which London uh, has become only more itself in the time that I've been living here and working here. But before I come to this theme, I want to say a word, if you'll permit me, about some of the people that have been important in what to me has been a very unexpected journey, from the peanut stalls of the new theatre in 1990 to the podium this evening. Individually, these are far too many people to name, although many of you will know who you are. Uh, but let me mention some social collectives that have been especially meaningful uh, on my way back to the new theatre and mark, in particular, significant stages on that journey. Firstly, I want to thank my colleagues and friends from Goldsmiths College, uh, where I went as a graduate student in 1992 and where I stayed for uh, 10 years and in some ways spiritually I kind of never left and personally 
as well. I did finish the PhD earlier on in that 10-year period, but I stayed on a bit longer than that. Secondly, I want to thank my city's people here at the LSE within the cities, um, LSE cities and the Department of Sociology and beyond, the urbanists uh, from across the disciplines from whom I continue to learn uh, and gain so much all the time. Thirdly, my dear colleagues and friends from the journal Economy and Society, uh, a collection which has been perhaps the most recent social collective I've joined on this path, and has, they are a collection of intellectual and personal role models um, who are also mean karaoke singers on occasion, it must be said. And finally, as, as Ricky's already mentioned, but certainly not least of all, I have to extend my thanks to the students with whom I've worked over the last 20 years or so. They were the reason why I decided to have a go at this particular job uh, in the first place. They are the reason for sticking at it, and they remain its chief reward. My first degree wasn't actually in sociology, so I got my disciplinary education at the same time as my early undergraduates back at Goldsmiths in the 90s did. I was struggling to stay one page ahead of them in the textbooks. Um, and now I realize it's much more a case of accepting that I can't keep up um, with the, the brilliance of my students, but I continue to appreciate the education I get working alongside them. And um, it's uh, incredibly gratifying to see so many of them here this evening, although some of the current students, you will have seen some of these slides already, so you can, you can look away at various moments. So let me take you back then to 1990 by way of coming to the theme. Some of you probably weren't born in 1990. Some of you were already pretty old in 1990. But by way of coming back to the theme for this evening's lecture and some of the ways in which the more things change in cities such as London, the more they stay the same. In 1990, in London, house prices were a very big issue. The shape this issue took then was rather different from the shape it takes today but something of the pathology is at least recognizable. In 1990, house prices were a big issue in London because they had been falling for a year and would continue. They're around average house prices nationally were around the £55,000 mark at the time, and they would continue to fall for another five years. At the same time, interest rates were rising. When I came to the new theatre in late 1990, the Bank of England base rate was 14%. Significant numbers of people, especially in London and especially in younger households, were living on ha in houses or in flats on which they were struggling to pay higher and increasing mortgages and where the loans they had taken out exceeded the value of the asset that they did not yet own. There was a particular kind of housing crisis at that time. Negative equity, as it were, was the subprime of the early 1990s, at least the frequency with which you heard it um, in the public conversation, on the front page of the Daily Mail, and indeed at dinner parties. Firm as I was in my conviction that property was theft, um, a convic conviction that no doubt was shored up at the time by the Marxist lecture I'd heard here at the LSE, I couldn't understand why the rest of us should worry about the state of distressed mortgagees. And some of that sort of division around property, income, affordability, and wealth, of course we see um, as familiar patterns today, although they take rather different forms. London in 1990 was an unequal city. This was hardly unusual, either in the history of the city itself 
or in the way of cities generally. And uh, it's a gesture to some of my Boothian colleagues here to show a rather muddy image from the Charles Booth maps made um, in the latter part of the 19th century throughout London. And I've just picked out here the area immediately around us. You should at least be able to identify the river and where to the north of it. It will be the um, anniversary of Booth's death next year, and we will be celebrating that. It's an odd term to use at that time. Of course, the thing to note, as we always do about Booth, is the cheek-by-jowl nature of wealth and poverty, as well as all the shades in between that are captured in his muted palette. So just to remind you, alongside the the grey areas, which are the public buildings, the royal courts of justice, the the temple, the inns of courts, court, and so on, are the coloured-in sections, which is the residential morphology of this part of the central city. The dark blue, which is perhaps the more visible area, just to the southwest of Lincoln's Inn Fields there, indicates a population that was, in Booth's parlance, very poor in casual work and living in chronic want. The red patches indicate the middle class, the well-to-do, and the pink and purple shades in between are those on ordinary earnings, in Booth's words, or those that were mixed. I love the fact that we were talking about mixed um, even in the 1890s, and you know, more than 100 years later, it's still a, a popular political byword. Mixed populations, some comfortable, others poor. Quite typical of parts of London at that time, as well as today. There are also some impacted spaces, um, which you, I think you won't be able to make out on that map, but there are some small impacted spaces, one of them which is just behind the George Pub, actually, on Parker Street, Uh, which indicates the lowest class, the vicious, the semi-criminal, living in close proximity to the comfortably off the well-to-do. Now, this image will be very familiar to many of you. And there are two simple things I want to note here. Firstly, that these extremes of relative wealth, relative poverty, of comfort, of immiseration, are characteristic of cities. Secondly, the very simple lesson we can take from a a first glance at Booth is that urban processes work to sort out these kinds of inequalities in space. In a city like London, these sortings take place often in close proximity. In other cities, and indeed in, in some parts of London itself, these sortings work in terms of starker and deeper spatial segregations. Cities make inequalities durable, and they render them visible. Inequality, that is, is something that cities do, something they have done historically, something they continue to do today. With their thick labor markets, housing and consumer markets, cities produce and reproduce unequal outcomes in ways that take more or less persistent and more or less visible spatial forms. And as more and more of um, processes of distribution in cities are organized through markets, uh, then this will be only more strongly the case. So if urban equality isn't new, and it's not unusual, then why should it be a matter of public and political concern? And if it's not surprising to find patterns of inequality in cities, then why is it interesting as a social scientific problem. 
What's more, we might argue, urban inequality hardly acts as a deterrent. Globally, as we know, more and more people are moving to live in cities. I was just one of millions of urban immigrants worldwide. Many existing cities are getting larger, especially in um, low-income economies, but also even an old city like London is growing. And new cities keep being built. People, it seems, would be voting with their feet for cities. And then cities hardly have the monopoly on inequality. Cities may tend to concentrate, to embed, and to reproduce inequalities that are produced at other scales the regional, the national, the international. Of course, we know that the disparities between rural and urban populations are far more um, severe than those that occur within urban populations. So whether we want to think about this as a political issue or as a social scientific problem, there are some immediate um, reservations and some obvious criticisms to make. Firstly, there is nothing new to see here. Secondly, that inequality is hardly a barrier to urban growth. And thirdly, I've simply got the scale wrong, that my concern with urban inequality is, is concentrating in space processes that happen elsewhere. Now, there are many reasons I think urban inequality is both analytically interesting and politically important. But to put it simply, all cities are unequal, but some cities are much more unequal than others, firstly. Numerous cities, secondly, in both high- and low-income contexts are becoming more unequal over the recent past. And many big cities, in particular, are more unequal than their wider national economies. So something is happening within urban environments that if, not, if it's not actually producing patterns of disparity, uh, is intensifying it, is embedding it, is uh, reproducing it. These trends, as I want to go on to suggest, and, and the story I'm going to tell is a broad brush one um, in the minutes to come, cut across any simple distinctions between rich and poor world cities. Across cities of the global north and south, Worsening inequality is a key feature of contemporary urbanization, and for at least some of the same reasons. So this um, rather basic slide here depicts a range of Gini coefficients. The Gini coefficient is a simple device developed by the Italian mathematician Lorenzo Gini some time ago, which is used as the standard measure for income inequality within populations, usually national populations. Here, um, these are the best guesses at certain urban populations, largely drawn from UN Habitat, the UN agency with responsible, responsibility for human settlements. So you see maxing out at the top end, um, if you got a score of one on this measure, your population would be perfectly unequal. And if you got a score of zero, your income would be distributed perfectly equally across different sectors of the population. So cities in southern Africa uh, tend to peak on these charts. Johannesburg um, is a, a keynote among these uh, starkly unequal cities. And there are a number of cities in areas uh, in poor and middle-income regions of the world rapidly growing 
um, economically developing. But as you get towards the end, we find uh, a city in Europe, Moscow, with very high levels of inequality, and New York and Los Angeles, the two largest cities in the richest economy in the world that show levels of um, internal inequality, which are on a par with cities that lack the uh, political capacity, um, the, the market innovations, and uh, the government uh, structures that those cities otherwise enjoy. So there is a need, I think, to be able to think both, to speak both about the durable inequalities that historically have shaped and continue to shape urban environments, but also emergent inequalities which are produced around changing urban economies and shifting political contexts. Some 15 years ago, the sociologist Charles Tilley outlined the anatomy of what he called durable inequalities, inequalities that formed and reformed in different historical spaces, in different social contexts, around certain relational categories, as he called them. These were unequal pairings that provided the basis for exploitation on the one side and what Tilly calls the hoarding of opportunities on the other. So one half of the pair gets exploited and the other one tries to monopolize uh, value opportunities for itself. Tilly's account was not specifically urban, but various urbanists have attempted to make sense of this in urban contexts since then. And part of this analysis, I think, remains very critical for our understanding of urban inequalities. Obviously, a key unequal pairing that was important within Tilly's framework was the unequal pair male-female. And gender is the most basic determinant of inequality globally. But it can be a little problematic in urban settings. Gender inequalities can be less visible at the urban level, especially when we use income measures uh, which tend to hide gender disparities inside the household. On the other hand, cities can help to mitigate certain kinds of gender inequalities in respect of providing access to income, to property, and opportunity for women on an increasingly, although never absolutely equal, basis to men. Having said that, if we think about um, the EU context and other developed world cities, it is the most feminized groups in these cities that are most likely to live in poverty. So here I'm uh, summarizing EU research. So it's heads of lone parent households and populations who are over 65, living alone and no longer in employment, who are most likely to live in poverty um, at a population scale across the EU. And these groups are most likely to be female. Similarly, smaller and highly vulnerable groups in the EU are uh, highly gendered. Women are more likely to be subject to domestic violence and sex trafficking, where men are overrepresented amongst ex-prisoners and rough sleepers, other smaller populations that are particularly vulnerable to urban poverty. A second unequal pairing that Tilly uh, advances, he, obviously he doesn't invent them, these are well known to us, is the division between white and black. And histories of race, racial oppression and discrimination continue to have severe impacts on contemporary cities. Clearly, it's the history of apartheid, which is the chief explanatory factor 
for these grotesque levels of inequality we see in South African cities such as Johannesburg. But it's also the main explanatory factor for understanding inequality in US cities, in Los Angeles and in New York. And to put some of these richer world cities uh, in their context, I've thrown Beijing there in there, although it is an outliner. The Chinese government does not produce Gini coefficients at either national or urban level. So this is very much a best guess. Um, but this post-communist city is growing from a low base, while some of the more expansive cities in the Chinese economy are held to um, be seeing a blowout of inequality, which puts them on a par with New York, Los Angeles, Boston, or San Francisco. And to take a third key category that Tilly advanced in his argument around durable inequalities and how they shape the form of cities. The distinction between the citizen and the non-citizen. Migration and citizenship rights shape patterns of inequality in numerous cities internationally, skewing labor and housing markets and defining access to education, to services, to legal protections, and often uh, making people vulnerable, indeed, to legal harassments. Various forms of differential and spoiled citizenships are visible in EU patterns of poverty and inequality for asylum seekers and Roma people, visible in a different way for migrant workers and bonded labor in Gulf and other city-states, are still visible in the system of urban and rural household registration in China, and are visible in the incomplete citizenship that is often characteristic of poor world cities, where um, sections of the urban population, particularly those living in informal settlements, have precarious relationships to the municipal state, to patronage networks, to the police and other forces of order. So I don't want to understate the persistence and the seriousness of these kinds of durable inequalities that are not in themselves caused by the city, are not fundamentally urban, but take various patterns um, and are either exacerbated or perhaps in some ways mitigated in urban environments. But I really want to focus for much of the time here on what I'm calling emergent inequalities. They're not entirely new, but they are somewhat distinctive. Again, to simplify the story, historically speaking, urban inequality has been understood as a problem of poverty. Cities are unequal because large amounts of poor people are living there. Cities become unequal because of the growth of urban poverty. However, a key factor for understanding deepening patterns of urban inequality today is the concentration of wealth in cities. This may seem obvious to many of you, but I think it's fair to say that analysts of inequality have tended to think about this as a problem of the poor, in the same way that segregation has tended to be thought about as a problem of um, minority ethnic groups. Um, In a city such as New York, the most segregated population currently is the white population, least likely to live in any kind of proximity to um, large numbers of people who are very different from them. So this is to shift the analytic lens somewhat from the poor to the rich. (coughs) 
And I'm going to move across the Atlantic for a moment because there is some excellent work being done on urban equality in these rich world cities um, by scholars in the U.S., And just to point out to you the um, changing pattern of poverty in the United States over the last 40 or so years. Poverty in the United States in that time has urbanized. Historically speaking, poverty in the United States was uh, in significant ways a rural problem. We can think about the Dust Bowl literature of the rural poor um, a century ago or more. Now poverty is more and more situated in cities. And this slide just shows that kind of, um, that shift. The purple line, which begins at the highest point by 2011, has dropped below poverty rates by area of residence. And it's the central cities in the United States that have become uh, the most concentrated sites of poverty. And the suburbs are doing best of all as they always do. It's worth, of course, noting, I mean, this is a very general graphic, uh, but central cities are, um, in metropolitan areas areas in the United States, tend to concentrate minority populations such that a number of leading U.S. cities have majority minority populations in their central cities. I want to talk about some of the forms of economic change that are driving this. Um, when people talk to you about doing an in- inaugural lecture, they say, well, there are going to be ma- very many different kinds of people there in the room. Some of them will have heard you talk about this before. Some of you will have, will have not have heard about it. Some will have no interest in it. There will be colleagues. There will be students. There will be friends. Your brother will be here. You know, there's a whole range of interests to speak to. Um, but I realize as I put this up that there is no one in this room who enjoys reading lots of black and white bullet points. So <laughs> apologies for this text, but it's, I, I'm just trying to encapsulate um, the, the, the sort of longer points that I want to, to make here to capture some of the trends that I think are important. I've noted that easy distinctions or simple distinctions between rich and poor world cities don't necessarily work when we think about the processes that are, that are driving contemporary urban inequalities. Because the impact of economic liberalization in different national and urban contexts has eroded incomes at the lower end and concentrated incomes at the top in many different urban situations. In higher income and transitional economies in particular, the liberalization of labor markets has tended to increase insecurity, casualize employment, and depress wages at the bottom end of the labor market. In Emerging economies, trade liberalization has been linked um, to unemployment and downward wage pressures, as in the high-income sectors, particularly manufacturing, that have been exposed to lower-wage competitors and import penetration. But a really important point to note here is that financial liberalization, we are in London after all, and the increasing integration of trade and financial markets has seen the inflation of incomes at the upper end of financial and related service industries in different urban economies internationally. Perhaps the most, uh, perhaps most significantly to take up the last point on this list, widespread welfare retrenchment has both removed various social protections and weakened redistributive tax policies that seek to offset 
to mitigate the effects of some of these unequal market outcomes. So the lockstep of public policy with economic restructuring has had the dual effect of rendering incomes uh, distributed through the market increasingly unequal while cutting the state measures designed to offset the impact of those inequalities. To go from the general to the slightly more particular, the evidence from the United States, the uh, largest economy in the world, just. Uh, Edward Glazer, the economist who is currently um, a visiting professor here at the LSE, together with his colleagues, undertook a study of 242 US metropolitan areas using census data from 1980 to 2000. And those earlier results have recently been reflected in research undertaken by the US Mayor's Conference, um, which updates the period to 2012. And they get to this argument a little bit before Piketty, we might say, and in an urban space. Over that period, 241, that is the period 1980 to 2000, 241 out of 242 U.S. metros became more unequal. There was one in Florida which for some reason um, managed to stay as it was. The chief factor to explain these deepening income inequalities in U.S. cities, Glazer and his colleagues argue, was the unequal distribution of skill across urban populations, the different kinds of skills, the different kinds of human capital that people are bringing to urban labor markets, and the very distorted returns to skills within these markets, especially in terms of um, accelerated, intensified income premiums for higher skilled workers in the growth sectors of finance and IT. So skill as, as sociologists of employment and work will be aware is, is spatially distributed in variable ways. And this is compounded when people with certain kinds of skills working in certain kinds of sectors are being over-rewarded compared to others. This uh, is something we might observe uh, more informally. It's gratifying to have it confirmed uh, by socioeconomic research. But something else I find very intriguing about the Glazer study <coughs> is the changing relationship that he and his colleagues identify between patterns of inequality and um, average income patterns. Conventionally speaking, the higher the income average in a certain area, the lower the level of income inequality. It could be sort of perhaps called the Scandinavian effect. Put simply in 1980, as Glazer and colleagues state it, almost all rich places in the United States were relatively equal. If you had high levels of income per capita, you also tended to have relatively equal distributions of income, always remembering that the United States um, is an extremely unequal economy. However, by, 2000s, by 2000, this association had weakened, weakened. The richer certain areas got, the more unequal they became. There was something happening in terms of wealth and the ways in which wealth was being generated in cities that was driving deeper inequalities. So there is a reshaping, this suggests, of urban inequality in the United States. I've said that historically analysts have seen inequality in cities 
as being driven by um, the growth of poor populations. The work of Glazer and his colleagues, as well as uh, the U.S. Mayor's Congress, and even Richard Florida has started to take note of this phenomenon, is that significant income growth at the top, uh, particularly in uh, financial and other services and in the so-called creative sectors, is now shaping inequality in urban America in new ways. Some of that nation's richest cities, such as San Francisco, which we saw earlier in that rogues gallery of international inequality, cities such such as these have seen steep rises in inequality over recent decades. It will be no news to some of my colleagues in this room who have worked on that area. Or at cities such as New Haven, Stanford, with, as Glazer puts it, its combination of inner city poverty and hedge fund entrepreneurs. Um, this was the most unequal metro in their sample by 2000. So something is going on in the biggest economy in the world and in its cities. Borne out by this visualization, which also, also shows um, the increased returns at the top as you move down through the national, the regional, and the urban scales. So in the case of uh, New York City, which is the blue line, the top 1% of income earners in that city take a a higher share than the top 1% at state level or the top 1% at US level. The patterns are the same. Okay, obviously, you know, the top 1% gets richer and poorer as dot-com Uh, dot-coms boom and bust and financial crises happen and recoveries occur, but in the city this is exaggerated as compared to its um, regional economy or as compared to its national economy. And we see similar patterns elsewhere. It's harder in the UK to get these kinds of data at city level, but fortunately for us, London counts as a region. It's the richest region in the United Kingdom, and it's also the most unequal in the United Kingdom. It overrepresents people at the very top and at the very bottom of the income scale. In relation to the very rich with whom Glazer was concerned, we see um, a similar kind of pattern occurring in London. Only 12% of people in the UK live in London, but 25% of the top 1%, as it were, so a quarter of the top 1% of earners and fully 40% of those who take the 0.1% share of income. And again, we can see the returns to certain kinds of income. And of course, these data are based on income tax returns. So we're only talking about people who pay income tax, right? So we're not even talking about the the really, 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 really rich, just the really, really, really rich. Um, And so it over-represents these sectors. People who are working in the traditional professions of law and medicine, but also these hot sectors of finance and property. 60% of the top 1% work in these fields, uh, less than a third of people in the economy overall. And I couldn't just resist just adding this, coming back to our durable inequalities. um, Where you live in in the UK um, is a good indicator of how rich you are, but um, actually just being a man is also very important for putting you up there um, in the the very top of the income scale. And we see these familiar patterns occurring in in rapidly developing urban economies. And again, there's an interesting sort of shift here. 
If you look back at the historical literature on inequality, industrialization tended to decrease inequality over time. As um, nations or cities industrialized, their levels of inequality tended to decline. In the Chinese and Indian context, very broadly speaking, more recent processes of industrialization and growing wealth have gone together with deepening inequality. So this is contrary to earlier historical experiences. And for similar kinds of reasons that we see in um, the overdeveloped urban world, with higher skilled urban workers taking a greater share of this new wealth and decreasing returns to um, those at lower skill sectors of the labor market. One thing I haven't mentioned, I've been focusing very much on income inequality thus far, but uh, patterns of inequality or relations of inequality are not determined only by how much you earn, but the kind of access you have to other goods and services, not necessarily through markets. Uh, it's remarkable to think that China, um, a still somewhat socialist economy, has some of the highest inequalities in, in consumption within its wider region. That is, not just based on income, but people's ability to access goods and services through various um, kinds of means, both through the market and through state provision. So the blowout of incomes at the top internationally, especially for those working in finance and IT, has seen a pulling away of an increasingly wealthy elite, clearly on the graphs of income distribution, but also, it should be said, and more importantly, in social space. So we can think about what happens in terms of Gini coefficients or you know, shares of income mapped on a graph, but we can also think about how this plays out in urban space. Through various kinds of mapping from Booth's day, um, some of you will remember the, uh, mapping that, the mappings that came out around 2012, very sophisticated versions of this have also been done uh, in the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at, at UCL. This one comes from the Department of Health, which maps um, declining life expectancy as you move along the tube line in London. And, of course, we can only conjecture about patterns of life expectancy for those areas where people don't have access to transport connections. Uh, in areas of infrastructural inequality. Inequality is also starkly visible in the built form of cities, in the ordinary spaces in which large sections of the population live, and those uh, elite spaces where high returns to capital are secured. But we can think about these lines of inequality in less scientific and spectacular forms to think about brutal lines of separation and segregation across cities, but also the forms of socioeconomic inequality and injustice that carve up space and sort people in space in more routine, more complex, and often in less obvious ways. I want to turn then from the social scientific, as it were, to thinking about the politics of urban inequality. Urban inequality, as I've said, is not new. Deep disparities have long coexisted with cities' economic and cultural dynamism, and unequal cities remain powerful magnets for people seeking economic 
and other opportunities. So why does urban inequality matter now? Well, I could give you a whole list of arguments about the economic problems around inequality. Increasing economic inequality is a barrier to development. It limits people's economic opportunities. It stifles innovation. It stifles enterprise. Um, as the UN Development Programme states in its 2013 report, there is a negative relationship between inequality and human development. But in a more um, economistic vein, the OECD in its report at the end of last year noted that countries where economic inequality is decreasing grow faster than where it is rising. And higher rates of inequality seem to have negative impacts for growth in large cities. There is a burgeoning field of research around these areas that makes an argument against inequality from the point of view of economic efficiency and economic growth. On the other side, we could say that inequality costs economically. It generates inefficiencies of the kind I've just described by um, uh, hoarding opportunities in labor markets, uh, in capital markets, and in terms of enterprise. It's costly if you have to spend on welfare to offset market inequalities, if you have to transfer large amounts of um, taxation to private landlords through housing benefit, for example, to allow people on lower incomes to live in a city such as London, or you have to provide um, extensive other kinds of services to deal with the costs of economic inequality. Inequality is costly as well in public and private spending to police and secure unequal cities. So we can make the argument from the side of economic enterprise and innovation and growth and efficiency, or we can say inequality is going to cost you. You're going to need lots of private security, lots of um, police, um, lots of uh, welfare transfers to the worst off, and so on. There are other kinds of arguments to be made against inequality in cities. A crudely distorted distribution of environmental risks, for example, means the urban poor are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, pollution, natural and manufactured hazards in just about any city you would care to name globally, even though poorer populations have the smallest footprint in terms of the resources they consume and the emissions that they generate. So one of the crudest inequities in contemporary cities is between those whose lifestyles produce environmental harms and those whose livelihoods and living situations make them most vulnerable to these harms in precarious workplaces, in dangerous jobs, and in vulnerable living environments. There are deeply uneven geographies, that is, of environmental risk and stark environmental injustices that are at work in contemporary cities in which some pollute and others there or more distantly elsewhere perish. So strategies for more environmentally sustainable cities, with which we're centrally concerned at LSE Cities, must go beyond issues of design and technology to address toxic environmental inequalities, the maldistribution of environmental goods, and unjust geographies of environmental risks. More sustainable urban futures, that is, don't simply depend on finding better technical solutions but are on a more serious commitment to environmental equity in cities as elsewhere. 
Finally, urban inequalities matter for questions um, of social sustainability. Taken to the kinds of extremes we see in many contemporary cities, both rich and poor, urban inequality produces social landscapes of fear, conflict, tension, and mistrust. Now, social sustainability is often taken to be the weak link in the sustainability triad. It's very hard to define, it's even harder to measure, and it's especially hard to engineer. (coughs) Even so, cities are primary contexts for human development today, for self-realization through education, information, access to opportunity, access to choice, as well as for group identities and solidarities. Cities routinely support social differences in conditions of functional diversity. This is a very tough balance for cities to maintain, and it becomes only tougher as they grow more economically, environmentally, and spatially unequal. As disparities deepen, as distrust grows, as crime and the fear of crime increases, as spatial segregations become cruder and more heavily policed. The issue of inequality matters in cities for the full development of human capabilities, for the coexistence of different groups, for personal security and safety, and for the everyday functioning of our city streets, modes of transit, and our public spaces. So if I think that inequality is a problem for cities, what might we do about it? And given that we are in election mode, I'm going to talk about what government agencies might do about this. Um, Inequality is a problem for governments. At least one of the parties in the current elections has uh, tried to make it a a primary agenda item. But unfortunately, government is very often a problem for inequality. A widespread political orthodoxy has, since the 1980s, reinforced the widening of income inequality. We saw it in the United States data, but it happens in other national settings, in social democracies such as our own, in post-communist and transitional economies, and certainly in developing economies uh, where state capacities may not um, have been uh, established to mitigate the uh, deepening effects of market inequalities. Governments have played a key role, not simply in retrenching social protections, but widening income inequality by promoting the growth at the peak of the income scale, as well as the cutting of public transfers and services for those lower down. It follows, therefore, that cities tend to concentrate the effects of top-heavy income inequality. As cities compete to attract and retain high-skill employees, they're competing to concentrate those populations whose incomes are driving urban inequality from the top. I know that Peter Mandelson recanted um, latterly from his statement that he was intensely relaxed about um, people getting filthy rich in this country. And Richard Florida is also having some moments of doubt when he he, uh, considers particularly the gender and the ethnic disparities that exist within the creative economy. But these gurus and these political gurus just hint at the way in which um, different national and urban governments have worked to promote the very processes that are driving top-heavy inequalities. Once it may have been the concentration of poverty that made cities more unequal and the growth of the middle classes that served to reduce inequality. 
Now high-end earners are making many cities more unequal through exaggerated concentrations of wealth at the peak. Governments, however, do have, if they have been a key part of the problem, they do have capacities that might help them to mitigate the effects of these inequalities, to narrow the widening urban gap in terms of policies of redistribution as well as pre-distribution, the powers that governments have to set the terms on which the game is played in different areas of their work. And just uh, as we, we quickly approach kickoff, just to run through some of these, through government, especially city governments, have access to revenue measures, promoting living wages, or forms of participatory budgeting that can promote greater equality through processes of distribution and deliberation. Planning and development have significant capacities for offsetting consumption inequalities and access inequalities through equity and community planning, through zoning for diversity, through forms of planning for informality, as well as through rent controls and social housing programs. In terms of moving people around the city, transport and infrastructure frequently comes under the purview of urban as well as national governments, and more equitable means um, of governing and providing these services are available through the provision of mass transit and non-motorized alternatives, congestion charging, and so on. There are economies as well as ecologies of scale to be gained through the densities of urban life. These apply also in the field of environment and energy through combined heat and power, through the leverage that urban governments have over building regulations, urban agriculture and green space, recycling and reuse. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, governments have a significant role to play in respect of citizen and common rights to the city, promoting and protecting freedom of information, freedom of movement and assembly, as well as through public realm and open space strategies. I want to turn, in closing, though, away from inequality as a problem for government and to think about it as a social scientific problem. Inequality for me is a social scientific problem par excellence. I was extremely pleased when Ricky mentioned uh, Weber earlier because um, my thinking about urban inequality sort of has the ghost of Max Weber sitting on my shoulder. Inequality has intense relevance for value, as Weber might have said. If, as social scientists, we study inequality, it's because we think it matters. It matters politically, it matters socially, um, it matters collectively. It's not simply a problem that has appeared from nowhere. We can map spaces around it, we can construct graphs about it, we can come up with explanatory solutions. But ultimately, the decisions and the actions to be taken are political problems. This is the Weberian dilemma in social science. So citing the OECD is all very well, mobilizing arguments against inequality from the standpoint of economic efficiency may um, catch a policy-making ear, but it is also to express a certain kind of value commitment. These are undecidable in social scientific terms. Whether you think a mansion tax or a right for tenants to buy housing association properties is the better way of dealing with inequalities around property 
in London and other cities is ultimately a political choice and not one that sociology can help you terribly much with, although it can talk a lot about it. So my interest in this comes down to a value commitment, finally. The unequal city is a key challenge for our urban futures. It intensifies the social, economic and environmental challenges that urban citizens and governments must either address or ignore. Inequality is a real and present problem for urban economies, for social and spatial justice, for the quality of urban life, and for the security and sustainability of urban environments. And the complexity of contemporary forms of urban inequalities reflects the complexity of cities themselves. But it also underlines the potential of cities to support economic livelihoods, to innovate environmental strategies, and to promote collective social life in conditions of diversity. So urban inequality, to come up with my own Mandelsonian recantation perhaps, is not only about crude measures of disparity or indeed instrumental strategies for economic growth. It is about complex and highly spatialized relations of injustice, exploitation and exclusion. Whether our shared urban future then is to be one of inequality may be undecided, but I would suggest it is not ungovernable. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fran. We know what your next book is going to be about, so, and so, so do you. So we have time for questions, and again, uh, let's use the NSC tradition of uh, asking a question rather than making a statement. Uh, and uh, when we come to you, please tell us who you are very briefly uh, and uh, direct the question to Fran. There are several oh, can't you answer them? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are several topics, several uh, areas that we may want to cluster the questions and see how they come. Probably, Fran, we might take one or two or three and then uh, come to you. So could I see hands up in the air and uh, wait for the microphone uh, to come to you. As I say, maybe even stand up. It sometimes helps. Right at the back. You want to stand up? Do you mind? Yeah, hi. Um, thank you. My name's Alex Bax. Um, I'm Chair, I wear various hats. I'm chair of a group called My Fair London. We campaign on inequality in London, so I greatly enjoyed your talk. Um, a crucial issue for the city. I was interested that you didn't mention Wilkinson and Pickett, the spirit level, Sir Michael Marmot, and all the health evidence that inequality mm. is plainly bad for our health, bad for all our health. The size of the gap is harmful, and harmful for the rich as well as everybody else. And it seems to me that's another very powerful set of arguments as to why we need to be concerned about inequality in the city and to do something about it. So was that just because there's too much to get in or you need to do more, more to look at that health data, which is more and more powerful, it seems to me? Thank you. We, of course, saw the health map of inequality where there's seven years of difference in life expectancy for men, which is one side of London to the other, which is the same difference as Ho Chi Minh City and Hong Kong, and the same difference as Quito and Buenos Aires. So we have continental differences of life expectancy. So you touch upon that. Other um, questions on the health issue? If not, Fran, why don't you tackle that? Or do you want that? to take some more? I can, okay, I can let's go for others. Other questions over here? Thank you. You have to say who you are.
Um, good evening. My name's Mark Tonkas. <laughs> um, I'm just going to start with a statement, with all due respect to the chair. Um, I'm rather partial to black and white PowerPoint slides with bullet points. Thank you. <laughs> um, but my question, Fran, is um, you spoke about increasing inequality, um, and I think I understood you to say that that was largely due to, in, perhaps in London specifically, but not necessarily, to do with the blowout in the earnings of the super-rich. Um, it seems, from what you've said, that equality is increasing. It almost seems like that's inevitable uh, in terms of a, a trend. But uh, what, I, what I would ask is, does it really matter about the degree of inequality if it is caused by a blowout at one end? Isn't it more important that governments actually address poverty, standards of living um, for people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Thank you. Any other member of the family here? <laughs> One more questions? Just looking around. Over here, thank you. Hello, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm coming from Madrid, which is also a very inequality city. Mm. And I've got two questions. One, if you have you already analyzed any city in which inequality has been reduced through planning, I mean, a new kind of planning that can fight against inequality. And the other one is um, concerning about your social productions of space, how people is also producing inequality. I mean, it's not only a question of economic and uh, power producing inequality, but also people. Are we producing or reproducing inequality and how? And thank you for having a go at answering the first one, although um, you, you said you wouldn't. Um, the, the, the point about health inequalities um, is, is a point very well made and well taken. It's not an area of specialism of my own, as you might guess, although LSE Cities has done some work in this area. Um, and I think it's a very, it's a powerful area to focus on. Of course it has relevance for value. It also is quite politically powerful to talk about health um, inequalities, health outcomes in the political debate around inequality. One of the things, this is sort of, I thought about talking about this and I decided against it. One of the, I have many bees in my bonnet about political slogans around inequality. My least favorite one is the critiques of inequality about the politics of envy, because it assumes that, you know, if you're critical of inequalities, you envy Roman Abramovich. Uh, you don't. You just want him to redistribute some of it. You don't want to be him. You don't want to live in his house. You don't want to, or any of his houses. Um, so that's the one on that side that, you know, to talk about this is to exercise the politics of envy. It's, the politics of redistrib redistribution is not about envy. The other one is the labor attack in the 1990s about, in, against inequality of outcomes. The shift of that social democratic discourse away from equality of outcomes to equality of opportunity, um, which was a deeply regressive, discursive shift, I think. And the showing those health inequalities or these you know, different mortality outcomes al along the tube map also gives the lie to that, because it's not as if we suggest everyone has to have the same mortality 
um, age as everyone. We're not trying to equalize these. We're just trying to make them less unequal. Um, unequal outcomes are going to occur in health as they are in market economies, as they are in educational outcomes. It's not about um, attacks on inequality. We're ever about equalizing outcomes, but it's about trying to address the grotesque disparities of outcome in all of these fields. So thank you very much for the contribution. You could speak much better about this than I could. Um, thank you for the gesture of support on the PowerPoint, spoken like a true librarian. And I'm very... Um, <laughs> I'm very glad you asked that question because my brother is the reason I went to university in the first place. He was the oldest, uh, he is the oldest, I'm the youngest, and we were the two that went to university in, from school and that was, it was because of him that I did. Um, I had no other choice, really. Uh, I'm not intensely relaxed about people getting very rich at the top end and Peter Mandelson has had reason to regret um, his ways in that respect because this is... A relational issue. It's an issue of distribution. It's not an absolute issue. Um, and my position on this, and I don't think I should also make a little corrective, because I wouldn't say that it's the expansion of wealth at the top that has, is the primary driving factor for inequality in London or in other cities in the last 20 years. I think it's something that's distinctive. There are many other things that are still in play, um, and we can't understate the role of governments in promoting inequality. So government uh, retrenchment together with um, market expansion for doing that. I see inequality as a distributional problem that creates various kinds of skewed distributions around environmental consumption and emission, um, around the consumption of space and property, um, <coughs> around the transformation of what were more collective spaces into more private spaces, increased security complexes and so on. I don't think the very, 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 very rich are good for cities in a, in a social and a spatial sense, however good they might be um, for certain kind of GDP figures. But you know, I'm going to bring in the OECD again. They'd say you let, you, decreasing inequality is more consistent with expanding growth at uh, urban as well as national level. Um, it's very difficult to come up with examples of best practice. Uh, and the usual ones that we refer to these days in urban analysis are examples from South America, particularly, for example, from Brazilian or Colombian cities where urban governments, um, especially in the Colombian case, and also national governments in the Brazilian case, have had um, significant impacts in terms of narrowing margins of inequality, but these were inequality measures that were so extreme. So they're starting from a very, very high base. And the kinds of... Um, nonetheless, I think the kinds of initiatives around um, deliberation, more uh, participatory budgeting, around transit and public space initiatives, um, collective services in the city are the ones that would tend to, to mitigate inequalities through enhancing access decreasing infrastructural inequality, improving education and health incomes, and so on. But, of course, the most important thing that's happened um, in the Brazilian case is at national level and its wealth transfers. Um, and I guess one other thing I should, factor I should mention that is very important, one of the reasons why industrialization in um, the, the overdeveloped world now went together with uh, decreasing inequality is because it was industrialization and, and uh, organized labor hand in hand, and when you take out that side of the equation, uh, which we have currently, then that's going to impact on 
unequal outcomes. So it's, you're right, it's not simply governments, it's other kinds of organizations. Uh, you had a second point about spatial inequalities. I took you to mean, was it like gated housing or enclavism, or what did you mean by how people produce inequalities in space? Where to go or not to go, the places, the universities in which we prefer to go, the places, I don't know, is something, because we always talk about uh, producing, uh, producing social space, fighting against polarization or inequality, uh, fighting for the common spaces, but I think that also the middle class is also trying to um, separate themselves from the others. So this is also, uh, it's not, it's maybe a subjective way to produce uh, inequality. But it's something that I'm uh, working with inequality at the educational level. That I think at a what level, sorry? Educational level, mm. you know, it's like every time someone has enough money to change the school, they, they prefer to change, mm -hmm. to, to go up. I know. Uh, Frank, can I just connect um, the, the point made by Alex Max on health and the point on governance? <clears throat> because, of course, one of the issues in the UK is that uh, decisions about health are not taken at city level. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a serious institutional issue there. How, how do you think that could be addressed, given that you were, you know, it, it's interesting that in a way it's not there. There are other uh, countries in the world where health is very much sort of organized at the city level and recent developments in Manchester are pointing to that and that's a, a new model which will be put in place in the next years and we'll see what happens. Have you thought about that at all? I'm about to. Um, okay. But just coming back to the, the previous uh, point, um, yes, you're right. I'm not sure everyone always everywhere makes, makes those kinds of decisions and I think uh, it will partly depend on what is the, you know, the kinds of symbolic violence and the kinds of choices that are legitimized in a culture will change over time. And, um, you know, back in the early 1990s, J.K. Galbraith, in his book on the culture of contentment, made some quite powerful arguments about how the, the ordinary sections, the middling, doing okay, you know, getting by comfortably uh, secure uh, portions of the U.S. population in that case, um, had shifted their identifications away from those who are worst off to those who are better off than them. So this sort of aspirational shift, and he said at the time, there is nothing so conducive, I'm paraphrasing, but nothing so conducive to, the, conducive to the collective good as a few screams of anguish from the very rich. You know, But he said the whole sort of moral, ideological um, culture had shifted in that way. And we can see similar kinds of um, aspirational ideologies at work in this context. I'm not arguing against social mobility or choice. In fact, when I was first working on the proposal for this book, one of the readers said, she seems to think in that inequality is okay. My point was, it exists. I, you know, I can't imagine um, a social reality absent inequality. Given that, how is it being produced? Where, you know, what are the, the where, what, are, what are the harms individually Collect locally, collectively, and how might these be addressed? Um, Ricky has very kindly asked me to speak more on an area which I've just said I'm non-specialist. No, no, it's on. Not, it's, it's not, um, but not, I mean, not on health. It's just no. You raise that that, that larger question of yeah. 
governments, governance. I mean, London, of course, one of the differences between 1990 and now is that we now have a metropolitan government in London that has some important powers in relation to these issues. And transport, I think, is the most important of all of those. Um, and it, the sort of overbearing oversight of planning may be less so, but there are, there are some goods to be taken there as well. And in different urban settings, the degrees of government capacity will um, vary. Um, whether privatisation of the health service might bring greater local control at city level and elsewhere, um, that there could be a case to be made for that, and I, it's not one that I would argue for. But city governments in London and elsewhere have quite significant leverage over some of the things that affect people's lives and health um, around emissions, pollution, buildings, transit, green space, um, apart from sort of the provision of, of, health, of, services. of health services as such. Do we have a few more questions? So, uh, Not football fans, two, I see. Two on the left. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Fran. Jonathan Rock, a former LSE student, currently at UCL Architecture. Um, two One questions. One, uh, ethnicity and race. Uh, you related to that briefly. Can you see this as a cross-cutting pattern when you relate to inequality in cities? And the second question is, is it truly bad for the economy? Soja, one of my former uh, professors, said, you need the super poor to support the super rich, and vice versa. So how does that fit into your paradigm? Thank you. Just two rows down. Thank you. Um, my name's Sonia Yuta. I'm just a London resident, really, who's interested in your talk. My question is about governance. Um, you know, you've raised governance. And just thinking about... Assume for a minute there's a clear outcome from the general election this week, and you're asked early next week. Um, the question being that over the next term of government, the ambition is to reduce inequality in London. What are the top three things that need oh. to be done? It's like I'm on the hustings. <laughs> question here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Susan Parham. I'm a former student of France, um, and uh, I can tell you she's a fantastic supervisor, and uh, I whizzed through my doctorate, I think, with you, Fran. Thank you. Um, Fran, I thought there was a bit of um, some Marxism in there, um, which, you know, reminds me of, of the old days. Um, clearly, um, you know, we still have got, we're seeing increasing uh, rate of extraction of surplus value, commodity fetishism is alive and well, and I think, but we have a discourse where it's completely um, mystified, just to to get back to the classic theory there, you know, what do we do about this lack of fit between what's actually happening and how it seems to, to appear in which the, you know, the notion of the, the, you know, people aspire to be very rich rather than seeing anything problematic about it? Right. Not disconnected from the first mm, question, mm, perhaps. Mm. You ready to answer? Or, oh, or I, am I ready? Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, we can leave the top three things to the very end. Okay, yeah, I'm probably readiest yeah, to answer we'll that one, but I just, yeah. just coming back to um, Jonathan's two questions, the, um, the intersections of race and ethnicity with um, economic and spatial inequality are, of course, very central to the organization of these patterns in cities, and I highlighted the way it works um, in some of the most obvious cases, which are you know, the 
post-apartheid, post-colonial city, and um, the, the post-slavery cities of the United States. Um, and in, indeed, of course, it's northern cities in the United States that show m- more uh, marked um, racial sortings than, in fact, some of the, the, the cities of the, the former South. Um, the, the U.S. is a standout case. In, you know, here, you, who, um, you, can, you need to talk about socioeconomic difference, uh, including race and also gender differentiation. But in the United States, you cannot separate out these two terms. Yes, you can in terms of certain segments, certain localities. Um, one of the things, and maybe this speaks a little bit to Susan's question as well, is that the legitimization of inequalities around um, socioeconomic outcomes is particularly surprising in that they've become almost the most naturalized inequalities in urban societies and others today. If one were to argue for uh, inequalities organized along lines of race and gender as somehow that's just the way it is, that's what happens there. It's got something to do with skill or desert or merit. Or you, There's no way we, certainly we in this room, but more generally in public debate could, expect, could accept that. Um, and yet we have this naturalised discourse, very reminiscent of those um, racialized and gendered discourses around social, uh, socioeconomic class. That if you're, you know, if you're not doing as well, it's just because you're not as clever, you haven't worked as hard, um, you know, you're lazy or whatever. It might be all more sophisticated arguments around that, that, that socioeconomic difference is a very naturalized category in a way that just doesn't operate in respect of, of other forms of, of uh, differentiation. Um, and, of course, you're right, there is a functional relationship between um, extreme wealth and extreme poverty, and uh, Saskia Sasson, who I think you might also have encountered him, makes a, this argument very powerfully in respect of, of London, that the way that the high-end services produce a market for low-end services to wait their tables, to drive them home, to mind their children, to park their cars, to secure their homes, and so on, just because there is a functionality around it doesn't, I think, constitute an argument for those kinds of disparities. I'm reserving my one, two, three. We're going to keep that to the end. We have time for maybe two or three brief questions. So I think two. So stand, if you stand up so they can see you. So there are two of you. Uh, you start and then pass the microphone to the right. Yes. Okay. So my name is Lag, and I'm a master's student at the Gender Institute and also a former student of France. So she's heard all um, this before. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering about, so of course I'm wondering about gender, but I'm also about wondering a little bit about what you just said about ethnicity and whether you could say something about how it links with the durable inequalities of race and gender in terms of how it's readable in like infrastructure and the spatial outline of cities. Okay, just gentlemen there. Right, yep. You stand up, please. Right. Hi, I'm, I'm Zhongwen. I'm a former student of LSE. Um, I'm just thinking about the five points you mentioned about how governance affects urban inequality. But how much of these five points are more from the mitigation perspective? And how much of it in terms of producing the inequality, whether in terms of the economic development or growth strategy that cities adopt, whether in terms of economic mix, in terms of economic sectors, whether that's also something that we should also consider. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And I think there's, I think there was, yeah, maybe in, with the pink, 
Thanks. Hi, thank you for your talk. I'm Salma Suleiman. I'm an engineer in the transport and infrastructure industry, and this was all new to me. But um, I'd be interested in hearing what's your view on how transport and infrastructure can be uh, made to uh, decrease inequality, and if you can't advise on best practice, what's some bad examples? I'd just be interested in hearing um, your viewpoint based on your research. Okay, I know we have to be very quick, so I can, maybe I, is that all right, go in reverse yep. order. A bad example is the private motor car. That's the worst example of um, a transport strategy for um, reproducing, embedding, uh, and creating inequalities, partly because of, you know, the, the ridiculous share of space that private motor cars uh, take, whether they're in motion or whether they're in not, and also because of the um, health risks they pose to others who don't use motor cars. Um, and more generally, collective provision. I mean, this is one of the, the key areas. Clearly, I've learned everything from Philip Roders, at Philip Roders Knee here. Um, the key areas in which urban governments do have significant capacities to um, decrease inequities in access through provision of, of collective transit infrastructures um, and to create, as I said, economies as well as ecologies of scale. And non-motorized would be preferable, you know I'm a football fan. You, many of you will also know I'm a committed cyclist. Um, and the car is, is the worst. I would, you know, I, I'd like to ban cars, actually. That's probably, that's my utopian dream um, for dealing with lots of inequalities around space, health, um, environment, and, um, uh, you know, just hoarding opportunities. Um, I've got to deal with the rest very, very quickly. The uh, Lurker's point about gender and race and how these become visible in the cities. I think, as I hinted, one of the issues about gender, which, you know, is still, of course, a, a, the primary basis on which to think about inequality globally, it, it's often harder to see in cities if, if we're working at a very large scale because of the way, as you know, the household vanishes, those kinds of differentiations if we're working at that level. It, of course, becomes more visible on the street and in spaces if we look at the, the share of space that is taken um, in public, in workplaces. And so just the, you know, the gender balance of space, as well as thinking about issues of crime, security, vulnerability, harassment, and so on, which have come recently back onto the urban agenda in the UK. Um, one of the things I want to, before I get to my final three, and I'm coming back to Susan's question as well, one of the things that Charles Tilley says in his original work on durable inequalities is changing the way people think about these unequal pairings isn't really going to change the inequalities that occur around them. He says that you know, many of these pairings, they're interchangeable. It's not always male-female, it's not always black-white, it's not always legal-non-legal. These, you know, these vary over time and across space, but they tend to work in the same way in terms of exploitation and the monopolization of opportunities. Of course, we need to change the way we think about these things, he says, but actually we just need to change the capacity of those who would hoard the opportunities to do so. So he wants to change hearts and minds and cultures of thinking, but he also wants to change legal structures um, fiscal structures, organizational structures to enforce those kinds of changes, whatever you might think about them in ideological terms. Um, and so that comes back to my last point. I've already said ban motor cars. That's me in my utopian mode. Um, of course I'm going to say 
greater redistribution through taxation. But really speaking as an urbanist and, th- urbanist and thinking about London, I'd have to say, and I'm sorry to, for the echo of Tony Blair, housing, housing, and housing. Um, this is you know, the, the key issue that would have to change for inequalities. We're sort of back to 1990 in an unhappy way. So before we come to a vote... That election for, didn't go well either. No, no. Wait, we, before we come to a vote for Fran moment, um, uh, Fran before was saying, we'll never make it, we'll never fill the space till 8 o'clock. We've only just started, Fran. So it's, yeah. uh, and I know there'll be 220 people not just wanting to drink, but to take a lot of the ideas that I had wanted to us. have the drinks reception before the lecture, we but I wasn't that. allowed no, no, to. No, 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 they're, they're, it has happened before, but with dire consequences. Um, LAUGHTER I think I look at uh, the head of department and I look at the other professors here in the school to say, I guess she's been inaugurated. I know, whatever, but thank you so much for giving the inaugural lecture.